All right, friends, here's what I'm going to tell you. In this interview, you're going to learn about something called the Yoda Code. That's right, Yoda, Y-O-D-A. It stands for your own decision advisor. And the good news is that it lives inside of each one of us. This concept comes from my guest, Dr. Sheila Olson's book called Wise Decisions. Not only is this book one that we should all have on our shelves and in our hearts, but her journey is one that leaves you inspired in profound ways. And you really get to see how her own Yoda code has helped her navigate decisions and crossroads in her personal life. I just want to note that this conversation does make reference to child sexual abuse and may not be suitable for all audiences. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. All right, Sheila, welcome to the show. It is delightful to be here, Sharon. Thank you for inviting me on. Okay, so let's talk about the process. When did you take the process and what was going on in your life that led you to take the process? It was January of 2019 that I took the process and what led me into it. I mean, this is just right up my alley. I love these kinds of um, experiences that take us out of our comfort zone in a deep way. And um, I'd heard about it through a handful of friends who had gone through it. One was my dear friend, my soul mom, Joan Boroshenko, who went through the process many moons ago, and she's written the forward of a the book on the Hoffman process. And Joni, as we were driving up to White Sulphur Springs, said, Sheila, leave your science hat in the car. Just leave it in the car. Because I, you know, I, I'm a scientist. I approach things through the lens of trying to figure out how they work and trying to kind of unpack them. And I can be a little bit skeptical and, and this and that. She's, she's just like, just go be open, go. And it was great advice. That's how I came to the process. I'd known at that point, five people who had been through it. And for each of them, it was a transformative experience. And was there a moment for you in the process that when you look back, ooh, there's the pivotal moment, or ooh, that was a magical moment that I still think about when I think about my process? There wasn't one specific pivotal moment. There are lots of pivotal moments where things just sort of hit me like a tidal wave or something big opened up inside of me or moved or cracked open. It was a series of things, but I think the kind of connective tissue between all of those experiences was just integrative of myself with the universe, you know, opening up my essential self and reconnecting with my essential self. And because of that energy that can only come about under certain circumstances, I mean, we're in this beautiful place in nature and 
everyone was open and talking about their experiences. Everyone was very vulnerable. It allowed me to tap into a more vulnerable part of myself that I was so grateful for because it just felt fundamentally expansive. And the, the other major thing that I noticed was just the you know, when you come together with 40 people at the beginning of the process, I kind of looked around the room like, I wonder who I'm going to have things in common with and who I'm not going to have things in common with. And just kind of trying to sense all those things out based on a couple of comments somebody makes or the energy they have or, you know, what they look like or whatever, any element of it. And by the end, all those things that tend to make us different from one another just slid away. And we were all kind of one big, one big organism. <laughs> and it was really, really lovely. And there was one point that I re- remember there was that we were all around in a circle and we we're all kind of beating to a beating to our own drummer. And we came together as a kind of a village and started to beat the same drum. And it was a sort of rhythmic exercise. And what, what I was I thought it was so magical how we all came together just completely randomly and apparently that happens every time and i think that was a good metaphor for the process in terms of the other people and how we integrated together even though i don't i don't really stay in there are a couple of people i stayed in touch with for a while and i feel very comfortable reaching back out to but i still feel like each person in that process is just a part of my soul and will be forever and if we got together wherever whenever we just pick it right back up with one another I love that. I actually heard your smile as you were talking about that moment when you're in the village. And I was smiling ear to ear hearing it because I know exactly the moment you're talking about. And it is so magical both to be in it like you were, but also to witness it like I often do. And it's uh, it's really, really a special moment, really a special moment. I'm curious, you, you mentioned um, being open and vulnerable, and also that was what Joan said to you in the beginning, like, hey, take your scientist hat off and, and be open. Was it hard for you to do that, or, or were you able to, from the very beginning, just be in an open place? You know, it was kind of a relief, actually. <laughs> I just went in, I was like, here I am. I got my journals. I got, you know, I got, I've got nature. I've got, if everything was very simple. The food was really good. And, and I, again, I felt surrounded by kindness and expertise. The Hoffman teachers were all, you know, it's a heavy duty process to become a Hoffman teacher. You got to be good and you got to know your stuff and you got to have this certain set of attributes. But it was, um, I just felt held in this profound way the entire time. And it was nice to just, I, I thought, how am I not going to exercise for a week? How am I not going to do this for a week? How am I not going to do that for a week? But, you know, letting go of technology letting go of the outside world, letting go of all that stuff to just be here now. It really was a gift and it, I felt it right away. But as you know, it, I didn't, I couldn't just drop right into it on day one. It took a couple of days and then it was, it was just profound, all of it. Are there ways, so this was in January of 2019, we're in mid 2023. Are there ways that you see that this still lives in your life today? I think there's a felt sense, you know, this, there's epigenetic shift that went on during the process and afterward in, you know, connecting with my whole self, my intellectual and my adult self, my child, the playfulness, my emotional self. I found the structure very helpful in terms of helping me think about each one as parts of me, but also parts of me that not only require, but deserve 
airtime. And I'm someone who I've got to remind myself to play and I've got to remind myself to give myself free time. And just knowing that that is, you know, in terms of a formula for longevity and joy and the things that are important in life, those things are really important. So I continue to remind myself on the, the emotional side of things to really connect in with my emotions. I think I talked about this beforehand, but get out of my head and into my heart because that is a really, really important part of the data set for me in making decisions and in deciding how I want to conduct my daily life. So I say that that kind of breakdown of where I am, those different elements of myself continue to be very informative to help me think and feel differently so I can bring my whole self into my day. Yeah. And, and you live a very purpose-driven life. And so to know that you you kind of take a time out and make sure you're out of your head, into your heart, all aspects are you are there and boom, then you show up for this purposeful life you're living. That's uh, that's an important combination to have. Yep. It takes a whole self to be able to, I think, to, to be the very best that we can be, to be our whole selves, not only in terms of fulfilling whatever our purpose is, but being present for ourselves and the people that we love in our lives. You know, those are all as important. I'd say the most important is really showing up for the people in our lives also, because that's the that driver for every, you know, for everything else. And to show up for the people in our lives, we have to show up for ourselves. Wise words right there. How would you define your life's purpose? Oh, I just love, I love these kinds of big, big, broad and deep questions. My life's purpose, I think in terms of me personally, it's something that I've found my way into over time, following the breadcrumbs of what life has brought for me in terms of different experiences to land on something that I feel is just bigger than me, where I can really have unique impact and grow and learn and help leave our world in a better place, hopefully in my own unique way than how I found it. And so I, you know, I'm happy to dive into what this is, but I will say, I think this is the most important part is purpose isn't something that we kind of go out and find. I think we think about, we were having a conversation yesterday, me and this group of wonderful people I work with, the Youth Performance Institute, around articulating to young people what purpose is, because it's a pretty heady concept for people of any age and stage, but purpose is not something that's sort of out there and we just got to go find it. We've got to go out, you know, <laughs> take a left and then a right and then a left and then go straight for a long time. And there it is. It's a process of in an integrated way, you know, the emotional, the spiritual, the physical, the psychological, sensing what that purpose is over time and then leading into it. It's a discovery process. Um, and we can cultivate and create our purpose over time. And it doesn't have to be just one. There are different stages in life that we go through. So, but uh, my purpose right now is helping make uh, youth sports safer and better and a more positive experience for young people. I'm a behavioral geneticist. My academic work, this is my really my third career, but my academic work looked at nature, nurture, and behavior. I worked in a big twin study, did my PhD on the Twins Early Development Study in London. And we know that nurture shapes nature over time or constantly evolving work in process. And I'm also an athlete and a first-generation American. And all the good things that I learned across life came through sports. But I also had a traumatic experience uh, with my coach as a teenager that really shaped my life in a profound way. And so with my 
science background and my passion for sports. I still play competitive tennis. I love it. I still play competitively, but I play really for mental health and to stay active and all the things that it gives me. But for young people, sports is such an extraordinary developmental context and tennis and other sports too. And so my aim is to really, in the ways that I can, make sports safer and better help educate coaches and develop coaches who approach the sport experience as whole child educators so that hopefully more young people, especially those who need it most, underserved children. And, and we, you know, we had no resources growing up either. And um, it's just really helping them get the best start in life possible. I've gone on for a bit, but this is the one last thing I want to say on this topic, which is that childhood and adolescence are what are called sensitive periods in development, where new experiences matter more. They're stickier in the brain and the body. These are where habits are formed, mindsets, behaviors that sort of fly under the the radar of conscious awareness. And so it makes this period of time, these chapters in life, more important for, for positive experiences. And when kids have and negative experiences too, these things tend to be stickier. And when kids are active early on, have positive experiences, fun experiences where they're challenged and they grow and they learn and they develop and they have, you know, a positive relationship with their coach. This all embeds at a deep mind-body level around the feeling of what it's like to be active, to be physically active. They are generating exercise biochemistry every day. It's positive for mood and creativity and everything we measure. And so part of creating a healthier, happier, more productive society is investing in sports to help create positive experiences for young people early on with great coaches so that physical activity is just a go-to for them, just something in their toolkit that they go to when they are feeling down, when they're feeling up, when they're feeling sideways, and when they want to generate some creative brain chemistry that it's just a go-to. It's just in their toolkit. It's just what they do every day. So how's that for an answer? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have so many, like everything in me is buzzing, but I'm going to go with what you just said. And we'll go back to some of the beautiful points you made, but this concept of them being active and what it does on a biological scale, do you think it also, not just does it teach them the habit of being active, but do you think there's also an element of trust? There is this positive coach relationship that's in there as well. This is somebody who sees their potential, who knows how to support, but also challenge them, who sees them for exactly who they are. So is there that aspect as well? Oh, that's a massive part of it. In built into the athlete coach relationship is this implicit trust. And for many young people, this is certainly the case uh, when I was a teenager, you know, my coach was the most important person in my life. I trusted him implicitly in coach athlete relationships, particularly as you get to the competitive level. These are deeply emotional relationships where a young athlete places sort of blind trust in their coach to make the right decisions for them and help them make decisions. There's this presumption that everything is done with their best interests in mind. And most of the times, this is absolutely true, but sometimes it's not. And when it's not, it can cause massive damage in a lasting way because the body remembers everything. There's this wonderful book, Bessel van der Kolk, Harvard professor wrote called The Body Keeps the Score. And, you know, we don't, we don't just forget hard things that happen. We remember them. And if we don't remember them in our minds, we remember them in our bodies. That's a whole nother conversation, but trust is 
central to the coach-athlete relationship. And the coach-athlete relationship is central to kids having fun and staying engaged. And engagement is the, that's the secret sauce to, you know, sport persistence, to staying active in sports. If it's not fun, kids don't stay with it. There are lots of other, you know, potential activities. So that positive relationships with coaches that are trusting and safe, um, nurturing, consistent, and and yet and also challenging because kids want to grow. These are these are termed developmental relationships in the science literature. Developmental relationships are those those that really help young people grow into the very best versions of themselves. Yeah, and I, you know, you drew the parallel of investing in our youth. Your vehicle of choice is through activity and sports, but investing in our youth in general is investing in our society. When I hear this, I think, huh, how much are we lacking trust today in our society? And to think of a world that these youth become our adults and our decision makers and our leaders, and they actually know how to trust other human beings, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. There's this wonderful quote, uh, don't worry that your child isn't listening to you, worry that they're always watching you. And we take in so much more from sensing what's happening around us. And there can be this cognitive dissonance, this, this kind of disconnect if, you know, an adult is saying one thing and doing another. The roots of trust and the roots of trusted human connection, respect, a feeling of safety, emotional safety, physical safety, psychological safety, these are all rooted in these relationships that young people have early on in life. And it helps them create a set of boundaries around what's proper, what's improper, what's okay, what's not okay. So yes to all you say, because these are rising generation. These are the the people who are going to be making decisions in the years to come. They're going to be shaping our policies, shaping what we invest in, how we invest in in our world and our, our society. And our society needs trust and human connection and the ability to listen to one another in a way that is not personal, that's not threatening, so we can really come up with solutions collectively. We need that more than we ever have before. And I think sports is a really underutilized vehicle for developing a lot of those things that you know are measurable in life. They don't necessarily show up in a, in a young person's grades or anything along those lines. It's about the, the people we're growing. And so this is interesting because you you first mentioned, you know, I have put together the breadcrumbs of what my life has brought me. And this is a perfect expression of that. You were a competitive athlete. You played tennis. And here now you work with youth who are involved in sports or even who aren't involved in sports and you make it attractive and fun and engaging for them, knowing that this will help them become these members of our society that we hope to have in our future. How did you even start your uh, love of tennis when you were young? Well, when I was a little girl, we moved to Boulder. My dad did his PhD in biochemistry at Northwestern, and we moved to Boulder when I was five. And my dad was, we lived in faculty housing, and right above up the hill was the rec center. And the tennis courts were outside the rec center. And my parents both played. So we used to trek up there on weekends. I would bring up a jug, like a Coleman jug of lemonade and sell lemonade to the hot and thirsty tennis players for a nickel a cup. And I that's where I first got out on the court and hit some balls around, but not very seriously, just kind of goofing around. But then when I was eight, we moved to South Africa, where my dad is from. And in Pretoria, I was eight years old. It was my first experience of feeling really like a stranger in a strange land. 
they spoke English, but it wasn't like American English. There were different mores and rules and it was apartheid, you know, going from Boulder, Colorado to Pretoria, South Africa in 1973 was a complete shift. And it was hard. I'm an energy person. So I, I remember it just trying hard to assimilate. I was a good student. I worked hard, but it was kind of hard energy and not a happy place in lots of different ways. It was hard to assimilate. And so my mom got me after school out onto the tennis court. They had joined a club called the Sunnyside Tennis Club. And I decided I was going to learn how to play tennis. I got on my bike after school every day and rode over to the Sunnyside Tennis Club. And I had a wonderful coach named Sheila Evans. She was a very good player. She won the national hard course here in the United States several times, but she had had an accident riding a horse when she was young and she had to play with two hands on both sides. And it was, and she was an, an amazing player, but she was an amazing coach and she helped me, you know, it was that, that sense of competence, confidence sidebar here, but there's a researcher at GW uh, Milken School of Public Health named Amanda Visek, who I think is one of the most important uh, psychologists in, in sports today and youth sports particularly. Her investigation is all around what makes sports fun for kids. And it's not like chasing butterflies and goofing around and being silly. There's some, you know, there's some of that, but it really is around working hard, being challenged, building mental skills, growing, learning, relationship with coach, these things that make us feel from the inside, like metaphorical trophy case on the inside, a sense of competence. And Sheila Evans did that for me. I'm a good athlete. I have good hand-eye coordination. I just love hitting a tennis ball. And I got better. I got better really quickly because I went out and practiced and it was, I played with anybody who would play with me. And I still kind of do. But that was the beginning of it. I won my first tournament before we moved back to the United States when I was 11 years old. But more than anything else, the feeling of being on the tennis court in South Africa was for me a sense of home and a sense of grounding, more so than my home even was. My home was a perfectly safe place, but there was something special about being on a tennis court. I still have that same feeling today, wherever I play. I step on the tennis court, I just there's, there's something that just kind of calms down in me. That's how I fell in love with tennis. It's much bigger than just the sport itself. Well, it's interesting because you know, in, in your list of what makes sports fun for kids, the word challenge was in there. And I wonder, maybe you know this from a scientific perspective, but, you know, sometimes challenge might propel the negative internal dialogue that we have versus push us to try harder. Are, are you able to speak to that? Oh, big time. I mean, it's one of the things that's wrong with sports today, with youth sports in particular, is this extrinsically kind of a pushdown of you've got to win. And what that means about an individual person's value if they don't win. Winning, losing, college scholarships, trophies. When I talk about challenge and the way Amanda, who is a friend and colleague, talks about challenges, it's more an intrinsically motivated challenge. And we're getting better from the inside out. Extraordinary happens when we put human being first and athlete second, or human being first, performer second, whatever context. And so the only lasting way to achieve is to have the gas come from the inside. For sustainability, extrinsic motivators die out. And so I think that intrinsic versus extrinsic distinction on you know, the metric of challenge is a really, really important differentiator. We have our own internal scorecards of how we're doing and performing. 
knowing on the inside of us what those things are that we're really trying to aspire to is much more important than anything that happens on the outside. I'm, you know, I may go out and win a tournament, win a trophy, but then back on the court again the next week and got another tournament coming up. And it's really about the process of, you know, the human being that we become in the process of becoming an athlete at whatever level, whether it's recreational or competitive, it's about who we become in the process of evolving into an athlete and what we do with that in our, in our broader lives, because that's really what it's all about. So what, what strikes me, uh, Sheila, and, and you mentioned that this is your third career, and I can't help but notice that, you know, you could have had the option of laser focusing on tennis and tennis only, and that's my thing, and that's my identity, and I'm going to be Olympic or whatever is the top of the top of the top for you. And yet, at one point in your life, you decided to switch gears, not letting go of tennis, but using that as a language or as a motivator to start to have a larger impact on the world. And I'm curious what it was for you that guided you to switch from this individual experience of being the top athlete to, okay, what can I do here to impact the world and leave it better than when I left it? Well, thank you for the question. The Guiding force was nothing I could have ever anticipated, but it it really came back to my experience as a 15-year-old tennis player and having my world fall apart with the incredible and unexpected breach of trust that I felt with my coach. My primary place where I felt a sense of belonging at the tennis club, the place where I went to learn and understand capacities that I had inside of myself that I had no idea that I had. It was really my coach who helped me see these things in myself and that I was, you know, I had real talent. We're talking about me maybe raising some money to go play some pro tournaments, but I was very good and worked hard. That When that fell apart, everything else fell apart. And, you know, my school fell apart, relationships changed. I self-medicated with food. I gained a whole bunch of weight, behaviorally did some stupid things. And my family life you know, really went along with it because when abuse happens, it doesn't just affect that one individual. It it affects the whole system of relationships, starting with the family. And so I couldn't see a silver lining for a long time. And I did go back and live a different version of my dream to play professional tennis. Uh, I went back and played club tennis in Germany for a few years, played some pro tournaments. I played division one college tennis on scholarship at University of Colorado. So I did live a version of that dream and that was kind of what I was able to salvage out. And it was, it was really a, a couple of key people who helped me find myself again. And one woman in particular who was like a mom to me during that period of time who just loved me for me. There was no demand for performance. There was no disappointment of not being the kind of the star that I was beforehand. I was just, it was, she, she was probably the only person that I, adult, with whom I didn't feel damaged but I, I didn't realize how important she was in my life until later on in my life when I learned a lot about what happens with children and child development when these kinds of things happen. Another person that was critical in me getting back on the court was my tennis coach, Phil Krause, the late Phil Krause. God rest his soul. He was just a kind person. He tried to get me to get back on the court for my East High School team in Denver and play for the team, but there were rules around not being able to play competitive tournaments if you played high school. And but that I'd quit tennis my senior year. And so Phil, he had been asking me for two years to come play for the team. And I said, no, no, no. And that year I was like, you know, why not? And so it was getting back on the court with the team, 
getting back on the court again was vital. And I was able to you know, finish second at state that year. I got a scholarship to play at Ohio State my freshman year before transferring back to CU. But that chapter of time and me coming back to tennis in a different way than I had left it. Like I had, I felt like I had the world in my hand when I just turned 15 and then everything went away from me. And I just felt like I felt shame. I felt like a failure. I felt angry at myself that I couldn't just pull it back together. I didn't know how I felt. I was really lost. So in this period of time, I developed empathy that I don't know that I could have developed in exactly the same way had that not happened to me at that time in my life. I grew major wires around empathy and noticing how other people feel. It was harder for me to actually learn how I feel, but noticing when people, kids especially, had hard things going on, I just kind of had radar for it. So that was the silver lining really of that developmental chapter, getting through it with the help of a couple of key people, falling in love with tennis again, staying with it, you know, feeling like I'm resilient and adaptive, which I am. It's probably one of my core strengths, you know, aside from my kindness, my heart. But I went into finance after that. After I played college tennis, I played, you know, pro tennis for a few years for a team in Germany, as I mentioned, and then went into finance. I was managing a mutual fund and had this really incredible career in a male-dominated business and was playing tennis again and playing tournaments and doing well. I, I had made a decision to put everything in the rearview mirror but before I went off to college. This is a bit of a backtrack, but I did went on a month-long outward bound course. And in my journals, which I still have, I wrote about the fact that I wanted to face off with my coach, address him, and then move on, put it in the rearview mirror and go on. And I actually used that language as a 17-year-old. So I did. And I faced off with my coach and I told him and I it was a tearful conversation for me and a, not a glimmer of recognition for him. But I just thought as a 17-year-old, he saw what happened to me. I was one of his top players and uh, he would never, ever, ever do it again because literally I just fell off the map for a period of time. And so, but pedophiles are repeat offenders. I didn't know that at the time. And so what happened 12 years later when I was in finance, I got a call from one of the few people that I had told about what had happened because I was, we stayed silent like most other people did in those, in that day and age. And we were kind of little people. We had no money. We really didn't have any important social connections. We just, he was an important big deal person, but I did tell a couple of people about it. And one of the people I told called to tell me that 12 years later, the same thing had just happened to another young girl with the same coach. And that's when everything changed for me. So I was at that point, a few years into my investment job, and I was still kind of progressing and uh, learning and growing and, uh, you know, earning real money for the first time in my life. I bought my own house and my own car and helped my parents a bit. And it was just that economic piece was the driver. But then it just this finding out that it was still happening forced me to start a process that didn't come out in terms of my career until several years later. I stayed with my job three or four more years, but I started seeing a psychologist. I talked about what happened. I turned in my coach. There was a whole process around that, but it was, it, I'm a very private person and it became hard for me because the complicated thing about these kinds of relationships, especially for someone who has done so much 
for you. My coach did so much for me. He really helped me see something in myself and helped me live in my way into a story that I, I don't know that I would have seen or understood about myself. So I felt gratitude. We didn't have money to pay for lessons. I took like discounted lessons. There are all these things that made me feel incredibly grateful to him, but yet he betrayed my trust in this incredibly profound way. So it was hard to go forward with it, but I did. But again, it was, um, it shook everything up. And so what wound up happening from that process was me deciding I wanted to do something else that was not in finance, um, do something that felt more intrinsically motivated and that allowed me to use my heart in, in an integrated way with my head. At first, I thought this was going to be being a child family therapist, a clinical psychologist who helped young people and families, but especially kids. Um, and I did apply to a PsyD program, got into that program at the University of Denver. But shortly thereafter, my uh, husband, I was just recently married, got a job offer to move to London. And we moved to London and I, I wound up doing a PhD in London instead of the clinical psychology track I was first on, which was very hard. It was a PhD in behavioral genetics when you've never, I took one psychology, like psych 101 when I was a sophomore at CU. Um, it was like learning a whole different language, just having to learn everything literally on the fly, like building the plane as I flew it, which is kind of how I do things. But went through the process of getting the PhD. I focused on education, how nature and nurture work in the classroom. And I moved into kind of away from the academic paper writing into translational applied science through a fellowship uh, with the SNR Foundation in uh, 2016. And then in 2017, and I've been focused mostly on education, public education, teachers, um, a little bit with coaches, but mostly teachers, parents, policymakers, philanthropists, helping them understand how stress affects the mind-body system, which was my primary focus at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, the biological embedding of stress, adverse childhood experiences, how they affect individuals' longer-term development, uh, and then protective and compensatory experiences, those things that can be offsets to ACEs, which are called PACEs. So. I was focused on education in this space. And then I ran into my coach at a national tournament of all crazy things 30 years later. Not an accident, of course, because this is how the world works. This is one of these God's big breadcrumbs. But I saw him and um, wound up writing a letter to him. It was probably the most important letter I've written in my whole life. And it marked the transition from me taking all the things that I learned from education, academically, um, and my own personal experience into from education into sports and so that has been the journey i've been on since then and that's that how my purpose made its way clear to me because when we have hard things happen especially the really hard ones that just push us to the very brink you know there is a way that we can we can lean into these things to heal ourselves and heal others in the process and what we know about human development across time and health and brain health, which is, of course, connected to physical health because the same molecules affect our mind and our body. These are not discrete things. We're an integrated whole, whole systems. Bringing these things all together at that point in my life just helped me marry the personal and the professional in a way that gives me a sense of grounding. But I was talking about the top three factors that help you know, brain, kind of brain body health across time, which are doing something physically active every day, exercise, that exercise biochemistry is so powerful. It's like our own endogenous pharmacy. 
can be whatever you whatever you like to do. You can do it individually. You can do it with people. Do something physically active every day. The second thing is having friends and social connections. Isolation is as risky as smoking 16 cigarettes a day. This is what one study showed. The impact of loneliness and isolation activates the chronic stress response, which is you know, stress is not a bad thing. It can be a very good thing, but chronic stress um, impairs our health and it grinds us down. The third thing is having a sense of purpose and having something bigger than ourselves to get out of bed for every morning. Something that helps us expand and grow and connect us with other people that gives us a sense of home. And so I just feel grateful every day. And I feel like all the stuff that happened, the hard things that happened, happened to me so I can be here now doing this work. And that's my story that I tell myself. I believe it. Well, it's more than what you tell yourself. It's, it's, you have put this into practice, into action, into physical expression. The way you tell the story is really breadcrumb-like, to use that again. I can really see the non-linear but connected way that everything came together. And like you said, you were able to marry the personal and the professional and your desire to have an impact and to fulfill your purpose. And again, purpose evolves and changes, but in this very moment, this is such a beautiful way of you expressing your purpose and marrying the personal and the professional. And what a gift that we have that you did go and get that professional training so that you could bring it into this space. This actually, I'm, I'm switching gears a, a slight bit, but it's there's a parallel here, which is your current book is a perfect expression of that, right? The book you just wrote called Wise Decisions uh, brings your scientific into how do we show up in our world? How are you helping people show up in their lives. Would you like to speak a little bit about Wise Decisions and where that came from? I'd love to speak about it. Thank you. Um, Wise Decisions, a science-based approach to making better choices, is a book that came out in early December that I wrote with my dear soulmate friend and colleague, Jim Lair, performance psychologist and just epically extraordinary human beings, worked with 17 world number one athletes and started the Johnson & Johnson Human Performance Institute. And he's all about all the right stuff. And uh, the book that we wrote together is about making decisions and making those decisions that serve us over life and really taking the decision-making process and putting it under a microscope, unpacking it. Decisions typically are just we learn from the people who are around us. We don't think about decisions. Often we're not even aware we're making decisions. And so the book takes readers through a process of looking into who they are, who they want to be. What are the things that are most important? What are the things that we want the people who know us the best and love us the most to think about and to feel when they think about us? Jim wrote some of the chapters. I wrote some of the other chapters. We both very much agreed that the first chapter should be on health and multi-level health, mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, these higher order values and beliefs that we have to make good, healthy, wise decisions. It all starts with coming at them from a, from a healthy, well-informed place. When we don't have our health, we don't have anything. I really want to talk about parenting because this is, you know, I have three boys, Jack, Charlie, and Wyatt. They're, uh, Jack is 20, Charlie's 18, and Wyatt's 16. And I, I wrote the chapters on child and adolescent development and families. Back to this quote 
children, young people, don't worry that they're not listening to you or that they're always watching you. This is vital information for all of us, but for young people in particular and, and for adults who are touching the lives of young people, teachers, coaches, obviously parents, grandparents, we're never too old to learn new skills. It's all about repetition and nurture shaping nature through the science of epigenetics. We're growing new wires and, and new muscles all the time. And we always have this capability, but never is it stronger than early on in life. And so for my boys, for the young people that I work with at a school nearby, uh, using the book as curriculum, it has been incredibly rewarding to be able to go in and help them think about who they are, posing these big questions, kind of like the one you posed to me to kick off our conversation. What is my purpose or what is purpose? Just, just introducing these concepts that, you know, sometimes many adults haven't really stopped to think about or have a conversation about and planting little seeds for them to grow and learn and, and think about and introducing concepts that can help them think about what's really important. What do I love? What brings me joy? Well, it just makes me think either this was intrinsic in you throughout your life, or I don't know how, but if I think about this whole story you painted for us and all the moments where you were able to make decisions, like getting back on that court when you were in high school, or, or even going to the court in the first place in South Africa, or confronting the coach when you did, or leaving the career that was so seductive with the financial aspect, all these decisions and all the little decisions along the way. Is this based on your experience of making decisions or maybe the painful journey around making the decisions that you'd like other kids not to experience? How does it connect to your life? Well, I mean, it's a great question. I've made some good decisions and I've made some some bad decisions. I, I tend to run on the impulsive side. So my, I'd say my poor decisions have been made at times where I've acted impulsively then rather than a place of feeling sad or down. But they've also, like, I wouldn't change a thing. Like, I would not change a thing. And I think one thing that's really been helpful for me in writing this book with Jim is aligning the decisions that I make with something called my Yoda code. Yoda is an acronym for your own decision advisor. And this is the inner voice inside of us that nobody else hears. It's, it can be our most powerful coach or our most powerful adversary. I learned from this experience. I'm going to grow and learn from it next time. It was painful or it was hard, but I'm going to take the nugget of information I can get out of it to lean into it and grow stronger and do something maybe a little bit differently. Or I'm a terrible person and can cause, you know, downward spiraling anxiety and depression and social anxiety and all those things that we all deal with. Our young people in particular today, these things are epidemic. But on the decision-making front, you know, starting with health as a foundation, when we align our decisions with our Yoda code. It's almost like a like a GPS. We can plug in our GPS coordinates to this place that we call home. It's all about getting home and uploading these messages about what's important to us, who we want to be in our daily lives, and making decisions in alignment with those major principles. Uh, we have it's a there's a workbook uh, element of the book where because it's important to write things down physically we use our default mode network our brain whole brain in a very different way when we're writing than when we're keyboarding or just thinking about things we integrate more of ourselves into the process but the the yoda code so mine for instance it's five or six words that describe 
who I want to be the most. And it, it almost takes the nuance or the difficulty, the friction out of the decision-making process because when I can align decisions with my Yoda code, I feel like I'm doing okay. Like I just want to, that's how I want to show up. So my Yoda code is kindness, gratitude, generosity, integrity, courage, and humility. And those are my big things that I want to hold true to. And so if I can hold true to those things in making decisions, I feel like I'm ending the day in a good place. And there are easier days, there are harder days. But if I can stay true to that code, which I have posted in little sticky notes in my bathroom mirror, in our kitchen, places where I look at it all the time. And the more that we, you know, as we form habits, behavioral habits, psychological habits, the more we repeat certain things, the more they become automatic, like brushing our teeth or driving a car. It becomes much clearer how I want to make decisions, what those parameters are. And I don't look back on them and think, golly, not, not that I don't make decisions I wish I hadn't made, but that's home. And when I'm driving my car and my psychological, spiritual car, and I know that's, that's how to get home, you know, we, we can't know where we're going on our GPS unless we have a destination plugged in. And if my Yoda code is my destination, I can go off and meander in a different neighborhood and then think, oh, I got to get back. <laughs> if I want to get home, I got to go back towards my true north beacon of, of home. It's been an instructive process of growth. Working with Jim has been an incredible gift. He's helped me take another light year step forward in terms of being a translational and applied scientist in terms of how I write that's human friendly and doesn't you know, cause instant narcolepsy. It's just all about the journey. So it's been a journey and who knows where I'll be five, 10, 20 years from now. But I do believe that you know, whenever my time comes, those things that are the most important to me that I'm grateful to have really sat down and thought about and talked about with my children and with some young people, it, um, I feel like I'm going to end up in a good place, wherever that is. I don't know what that's going to look like on paper, but I know where my, my soul is going to be. That feels good, stripping everything else out away from it, if you understand what I'm saying. I do. I really do. I find this so beautiful. And it sounds like your book is interactive and has the workbook element. And so people who get this book can actually not just read it and have their intellects be engaged, but actually have it be interactive and walk away with their own Yoda code. And this idea of no matter where we are, if we stay true to this code, which is aligned with our healthiest self, most whole self, no matter where we are, we know we are still there in the most healthy, most aligned aspect of ourselves. It's almost like disarming the fear or the anxiety or that negativity that we navigate pretty often as humans. It kind of quiets that if you're going into life knowing that you are connected to your Yoda code. I think that is really lovely. And you're an expression of, look, this is a person who has gone, wow, your journey, your life journey has, like you said, there was, there was a trauma involved. There were a lot of key people involved. There were a lot of decisions involved. Not all of them are ones that were quote unquote good, but they happened. And here you are living out your purpose in what it feels like is accurate and aligned in this very moment and caring about the impact, the positive impact that you're having in the world. I think you are an expression of what happens when you do this. Thank you. I wouldn't be who I am without the people in my life. They're everything. Grateful to have extraordinary friends who, you know, 
people who are one plus one equals three or more. As I said earlier on, I'm a big energy person. I just feel grateful to be continually expanding in a way that is meaningful for me and, and some others too. It brings deep meaning into my life. I'm grateful for every day I have. Oh, I think even though we could go on, I think this is a good place to to stop and let people digest and integrate this. We'll have links to the book um, for more information. But thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself. And um, thank you for honoring this drive to, like you said earlier, leave the world a better place and have a positive impact. And clearly your focus is on youth, which means you're investing in uh, the world in 30 to 40 years, right? Not in the short term, but in the long term. And um, so in, in advance, a thank you to what the world will be like in the next, you know, three to four decades. Oh, well, you are incredibly kind. And thank you for your wonderful questions, your generosity of spirit. Thank you for having me on. And for, you know, your job also is, is bringing meaning and information and hope and inspiration to people in a, in a very active, heartfelt way. And so I'm grateful for all you're doing to spread my message and others to a broader group of people. It's a big ripple effect and every little bit counts. It sure does. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm, I'm hanging up this podcast feeling so good and going back to my life. So thank you again, <laughs> Sheila. <laughs> thank you. Okay. You take good care. You too. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Rassi Rossi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.